still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every Well, I guess we can uh, go ahead and get started. So this is our last class, um, as uh, I think was announced next, next Wednesday is the beginning of the summer series with Ralph Walker. So this is our last class together, and uh, we're going to try to... uh, come to some conclusion as we've been talking about God and the attributes of God. In the last uh, couple of classes, I've been talking about what to some people is a contradictory perspective of God. That is, on the one hand, God is love, and on the other hand, God is light. That doesn't sound contradictory until you start really exploring what it implies that God is light, and that is, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And that statement pushes us towards uh, some other aspects of God that we want to start talking about a few minutes in the beginning of our class tonight. Um, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That is a very challenging, a very challenging statement. Maybe more so than we sometimes realize. But I want us to to think about that for a moment. Look over to John chapter 12. We're going to begin there this morning. I have been very indecisive what direction I was going to go with this tonight, and I've shuffled my notes. Um, But I want to begin in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, begin in verse... 44, Jesus says, it says, Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me may not, will not remain in darkness. So the the point is, Jesus came into the world as light, and the purpose of that was to lead men out of darkness. And by leading them out of darkness, to lead them into the light where they might be in fellowship with God. So when we read the statement, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, We need to understand that the darkness he's being described here is everything that Jesus came to lead us out of. It is to lead us away from sin. That Jesus brought light that we might not live in darkness because there is no darkness in him. 
If you turn a little further back in John, in, in chapter 3, when we talked about the love of God, we use this as one of our verses when we said, uh, read a passage we all are very familiar with in John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the, uh, the, the stakes here are eternal life or perishing. He says, God sent his son in the world. He loved us so much that he sent his son that he might die, that we may not perish, but instead have eternal life. But, but let's continue reading down through a few other verses. He says, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, we didn't read all the way down in, in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, where we were a minute ago, if we'd read a couple more verses, we see a similar statement. Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. And here it says that again. He did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but uh, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought by God. So here... When we're, as we think about this idea of God being light and in him is no darkness of all, at all, here in the, the, the verses that follow this great statement on love, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us, he goes on to say that men love the darkness instead of the light. And they will be judged for it or already have been judged for it. So when we think about the idea of light, we have to understand that if, if God is light and there is no darkness in him at all, then anything that is not light, that is the darkness, the evil with which we do, will lead us to judgment and, and cause us to perish, as opposed to receiving everlasting light. So that leaves us this idea of God as judge. God as judge. And that's the part that so many of us sometimes struggle with. You know, how is the loving God the God that judges? And then when we start thinking about God as judge, what other things come to mind? When we picture God as judge, what, what sometimes comes to our mind? What aspect of God? Well, for me... It's the wrath of God, the wrath of God. And when we start thinking about the wrath of God, now the struggle becomes a little more difficult. How is a loving God, a God that is wrathful? We have a hard time picturing that in our heads. So what I want to do is I want to read a couple of other uh, passages that kind of sets the stage for this uh, discussion. Turn over to Nahum. We looked at Nahum uh, 
two weeks ago. And I want to turn back to that same passage. Nahum uh, is writing in his very short book about the judgment that is to come upon Nineveh. And he begins his discourse describing the judgment of the Lord. Listen to this. A A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry up. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? The wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. That's not the common description, perception that many people have of God. But let's, let's look at more. Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul is describing a scene similar to what we just read in Nahum. We we talked about whether or not God is a different God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll listen to this. Looking to see if I've written down the right passage here. I don't think I have. I'm supposed to be in 2 Thessalonians. Okay, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1 and verse 7. He says in the beginning of verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay the affliction those who pay with, repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. Jesus himself, if you'll look over to Mark chapter 9, Jesus himself 
talked about the subject of hell and eternal punishment more than almost all other Bible writers combined. And here in Mark chapter 9, he says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into unquenchable fire where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. These are the words of Jesus. And, and there are other passages, of course, that we could, could look at where Jesus talks in these terms repeatedly over and over. The Lord who came to earth to do the will of the Father, who came not to judge but to save, has been appointed judge. He has been appointed judge. And he speaks of the judgment day and the consequences that are coming to those who oppose the Lord in terms that are startling to us when we read them. And so... There are a lot of people, you know, it's interesting. There are people who cannot picture God as a loving God because they see things that don't seem loving. And there are people who have a hard time picturing God as a wrathful God because they can only see the love of God. And so you have this contradiction uh, in, in the hearts of people going in both directions where they're, they're confused by, you know, who is God? Is God loving? If he's loving, why are these bad things happening? Is God wrathful? If he's loving, how can he be wrathful? And, and so there's this conflict that goes on. And, and so I want us to talk about that a little bit tonight. And, and I want to get your input a little bit. Because I, I think uh, it's important that we have the proper understanding of who God is. It's important it's important that we help people understand the love of God. And that's not a real tall task. But it's equally important that we help people understand that God is the light and in him is no darkness at all. It's important that that message stay alive in our life as individuals, but in our teaching, in our preaching, that is a message that is loud and critical. So why are we so afraid of that? Why do we speak of it so little? I, I know when I was growing up, um, there were a lot of sermons about hell. I can honestly say that sermons about hell were a motivating factor in me obeying the gospel. When, my, uh, when I was young, 
I was baptized at a pretty early age compared to a lot of people. And I remember a salesman came to my parents' home. And uh, he was trying to sell smoke detectors. And I was down the hall, very small house that I grew up in. I was down the hall and I could hear the whole conversation from my room. And he left. My parents didn't buy a fire extinguisher. And I remember thinking, I got to go talk to them. Because all I could imagine was a house fire. How terrible that would be. And we would all be caught in a trap and unable to get out. But then that got me to thinking about other things. About my own mortality, which people my age didn't often think of. And of course, it's combined with fire on top of it. Should the wrath of God be a motivating factor? Why do you think Jesus talked about it so much? Except to motivate us. Yeah, so it's an important factor. So, so why is the wrath of God so hard for us to, to accept? I think, for one thing, I, I think the wrath of God, we look at the wrath of God in terms of our own anger. You know, um, the Bible uh, speaks in very uh, anthropomorphical uh, language. That is, it applies to God the attributes of men. Yeah, so we, we picture God having hands and feet and eyes and hair, dressed in some arraignment. Yeah, we, we think of God as loving. We think of God as a father. You know, the scripture describes God in, in ways that we can understand by our own experience. What's our own experience about anger? Not very good, is it? Our own experience with anger is someone that is out of control. If you pictured a man who is wrathful, what do you picture? Someone who's lost it. They've lost their temper. They've, they've blown every, I mean, they're blowing up and they're going to clean out everything. And we never put anger and wrath in human terms in a good light for a good reason. Because very seldom do we find an angry person who's doing anything good. Now, is it possible for a, a person to have righteous anger? Yes, it is. It is uh, possible. Is it the usual? Is it what we commonly see? No, it's not. So it's easy, I think, for us to picture a God who is wrathful and angry to be wildly out of control to be doing something he shouldn't be doing. Why, why is he like that? I thought he was a loving God. How is he so angry and out of control? Think about this from another standpoint. Let's look at the other side of that coin from the same perspective. Think about the love of God. How does the love of God compare to the love of men? A lot like the anger of God compares to the anger of men. You know, for men, love is often silly and unreasonable, emotional. In fact, love, or what we call love, we often misuse that word, leads us down a lot of bad roads, doesn't it? 
you know, two young teenagers in love can get themselves in a lot of trouble. And many have. You know, we, we love something, we desire something. I mean, often that's what we, love to us is the same as desire. They're, they're, they're different. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago how the, the Greek language had some advantages over English when, it's talking, when we're talking about love. And this is a perfect example of that. You know, in the Greek language, there was a word for desire. You know, the, uh, love that is desire, love that is brotherly, love that is unselfish. There were these different words that describe that. And we have the word love, and we use it in all kinds of ways. We love in, inanimate objects. We love, you know. But often when we say the word love, we're really, you know, we're desiring something, and often that desire isn't proper, right? Is the love of God ever improper? Is it ever irrational or emotionally disconnected from reality? The love of God? No. The love of God is always pure and perfect, the love of God is always exactly what love should be. But so is the anger of God, always perfect and proper and what it should be. The wrath of God is perfect and proper and what it should be. It's not out of control like we sometimes picture or see ourselves out of control. It is perfect it is proper. It is directed at the right thing. How often is our anger misdirected? You know, I, I, I tell you, some, one of my faults is I, I'm an impatient person. I can be very impatient sometimes. And, my, and impatience leads to what? Frustration and sometimes anger. And a lot of times we're frustrated at one thing, but who catches it? The next person we see are our spouse. Come home from work, you're frustrated and aggravated and angry, something about work, and the first thing that sounds silly to you catches it. The first thing that doesn't sound consoling catches it. Have we done that? Misdirected our frustrations? Sure we do. Does God misdirect his anger? Never. His anger is always applied to the right people in the right measure, always perfect. You see, that's why it's so important to understand the nature of God, that God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, that God is everywhere, but that God is infinite, infinitely good. So when we're trying to understand God and we're trying to you know, look at these different aspects of God and trying to figure out how do we understand the wrath of God, we understand it as perfect. That's where we begin. The God's anger and wrath are perfect in what they're directed at, who they're directed at, why they're directed that way, and the measure with which it is handed out. It is always perfect. And so when we start thinking about God's judgment, and that's why we, you know, Go back to passages like John chapter 12, where he says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. We begin to understand that statement a little bit. He came to save the world from judgment. He came to bring light so that we can come out of darkness. 
That's why he came. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. And so men can come out of darkness. But as John goes on to say in John chapter 3, but men loved the darkness. So when, when, you know, and so it goes on to say that they're judged already. What does it mean they're judged already? It means that men judge themselves by their conduct. Men judge themselves by whether or not they choose darkness or light. The judgment of God is less a matter of figuring things out as it is pronouncing. They loved the darkness. And so they couldn't be with God because in him is no darkness at all. And, John, and, and uh, uh, since our last class, you know, we began in our, our Sunday morning class when we were talking about some of these things. We were, spent a lot of time um, in Acts chapter 17 with Paul's Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Sermon on the uh, Areopagus. And he says, he concludes his sermon where he is explaining God and all these different attributes that we've gone through all so clearly in this sermon, this incredible sermon that he has. He says in verse 29, I'm going to be in there. He says, being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of men. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul concludes this sermon where he is describing God in this incredible way. But he comes to the end of it and he says, let me tell you the most important part of this story. This God that I have described is no longer overlooking man's sinfulness, but instead is going to judge the world through his son whom he raised from the dead. He's going to judge the world. So, so what do we do with that information? How do we... What do we do with it? I want to look. We don't have much time for this, but I want to look over to Romans. I almost spent the entire class on just this one thing here. In the book of Romans, you know, the challenge of looking at some of these passages is, you know, Romans is a dissertation. It's a, it's a step, one step builds on another step on another step. It is an argument that is layered, and Paul begins the argument in chapter 1, and he is continuing the argument, as I'm talking about it right now, through chapter 11. In chapter 11, we ended class last week. We ended class last week by reading chapter 11 and verse 22, where it says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fail severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. The word severity here is only used right here as a noun in the New Testament. Um, it's used in adverb form, possibly in a couple of other cases, 
But the idea here is the abrupt, you know, uh, cutting off. And what he's describing here is, of course, the Jews. He's, he's, he's spent a lot of time in this section of Scripture we were just talking about where he has talked about the Gentiles and their sinfulness and God's wrath and judgment upon them. Um, but then he's talked about the power of the gospel and belief in Jesus Christ as the way for the Gentiles to be redeemed. But he's also talked about the Jews and how the Jews were God's chosen people, but they had fallen away. They had fallen away so as to be cut off, and they had rejected Christ. And so I, I want to begin. Uh, I want to begin in chapter. Um, let's look in chapter ten. He says, "My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them—that is, Paul speaking of Israel." is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And he he is going to go on in chapter 11 to describe the law and the stumbling block. uh, Or... um, you know, the stumbling block that everything became. He says, they were seeking to be justified by the law, but they were condemned by the law, but they have refused to accept the one who is the end of the law, Jesus Christ. And he says a lot here, we won't talk about, about you know, to, to the Gentiles, to the Romans that he's writing to. He says a lot about to them, helping them to understand God and his relationship Uh, with the Jews who were his chosen people. And that's the part that I want to focus on. These were God's chosen people. And Paul spends a lot of time, while speaking of the Jews as a lost people, he talks a lot about the Jews as a chosen people whom God loved. And so he comes to chapter 11. He says, he's describing the branches being cut off, that is, some of the Jewish nation, he says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Don't be arrogant towards the Jews who've been cut off as I've described them. He says, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, then he will not spare you either. Behold then the goodness and severity of God. To those who fail severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. When you understand the context of that statement, you realize he's, he's warning them. He says, you have received the grace of God. You have been grafted in as branches that weren't part of the, the real tree. You've been grafted in, wild branches who were grafted into the cultured olive tree. That's the picture that's being described here. You've been grafted in, and now you'll be cared for and taken care of as a cultured olive tree. But don't forget that God was willing to cut off the branches 
of his favored people. Behold the goodness towards you, but also the severity of God. So when we're, when we're thinking about who God is, we have to embrace the goodness and the severity of God. I, I want to, um, we only have five or six minutes left, and I want to raise a, a few other points. Um, and, some, and some of these I got from a, a, a book uh, called Knowing God, and I suddenly can't think of the name of that author. I've read the whole book. Of, uh, Parker by Parker, is, is, uh, he made some points along these lines, and I've just kind of embellished them a little bit. And, but I think he was really hitting on some really good points. Why are so many people confused about who God is? Why are so many people confused? Whether you're on the side where you can't see God as loving, or you're on the side that you can't see God as wrathful, or any of the, many of these other things that we've talked about as we've described God. Well, one reason is, is we have fallen into the practice, many people have, fallen into the practice of following our own private religious hunches instead of really getting to know the God of the Bible. And, and I, I, I think about that point, and I think it's so true that we follow our instincts, our gut, our hunches, what we think about God. God must be this way, God must be that way. When we need to be following his word and let it, let it describe for us who God is. Let God describe himself to us. And so often when we hear people with these wild misconceptions of God, it's because it is what they want, you know? And, you know, and atheists, by the way, accuse us of that. You know, atheists accuse religious people of inventing their God. And you know what? Sometimes we're guilty of that. We're guilty of making God what we are comfortable with him being, making God what we would like for him to be. And follow those hunches. A second, which Parker pointed out, is the notion many people have that most religions are relatively equal. Pluralism. Now, I don't know that that's a problem in this audience. But I do believe that it is a problem in the world, pluralism, the idea that all religions have their own value, that each, one, each religion tells us something about God, helps us understand ourselves and God and our universe, and, you know, and we, we can draw on all of the. If you don't think that that doesn't, if you think that that doesn't influence us, I think you're mistaken. It does. And, you know, we can illustrate this in this way. The idea of pluralism is that nobody's wrong. Everybody's right a little bit or a lot, but everybody's kind of right. Nobody's wrong. We live in a, a world today that you're not allowed to say somebody's wrong. You're not allowed to advance the idea of truth of a single truth, that there is such a thing as truth. But if you, you can't understand the God of the Bible if you can't recognize that he is truth. And so, at the very least, 
We resist and bristle at the idea of being accused of being narrow-minded or a bigot or anything along those lines. And so a pluralistic world pressures us to stop standing for truth. And we don't understand who God is when we stop doing that. Third, I have a couple more minutes here. Third problem we have with understanding the wrath of God is our difficulty in realizing our own sinfulness and the real nature of sin. We water down sin in every opportunity that it can't be that bad. And if sin isn't bad, then why, why would we be judged for it? Or why would we be punished for it if it's not really that bad? But you can't understand the God of the Bible and think like that. Go back to John 3.16. How bad is sin? God so loved the world. And he goes on to say, you know, he doesn't want any to perish, but have everlasting. God so loved the world that he gave his own son because of sin. He gave his own son. In every way, God has reached out and wrapped himself around us. He has been patient and long-suffering. Look at the history of Israel that we were talking about. He's been patient and long-suffering in every way to the point that he gives up his own son. And then we don't understand the wrath of God against those who reject him those who choose darkness over light. And lastly, just the, the idea that to reject the wrath of God because we just think God can't be like that. God just can't be like that. Well, God has described himself as clearly as possible as both a loving God who will do anything to save your soul from hell. But a God who in the end is pure and righteousness defined. In him there is no darkness at all. And so those who live in the darkness, who choose the darkness, will be separated from him. And he has described that in the worst possible imaginable terms of what that will be like. Uh, just to summarize, because that's not really a summary of our whole class, I, I've appreciated a lot of conversations I've had with people. Um, understanding God and knowing God is a lifelong pursuit, you know? We, we, there's, so, there's more that I would like to have talked about that we haven't than I've talked about. And much of it was skipped over because I wasn't qualified to do it. But there's so much that we can gain from pouring ourselves in, you know, looking at the universe around us, and appreciating God in the universe, but also pouring ourselves into his word and let him describe himself, introduce himself to us. And if we will do that, we will be enriched and come to have a relationship with him. By drawing near to him, he will draw near to us. But I appreciate your attention over these weeks and uh, enjoy uh, the class. The Lord is in his holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. 
If you live in North Central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence before Him.